Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I'm also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Off the Couch is presented by CBG Trails. The CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. Our guest today is David Roche, who is one of the most successful running coaches out there, but he is certainly not the most conventional running coach. And while data-driven training play an important role in the SWAP coaching program run by David and his wife, Megan, there are some foundational and existential principles that underlie their approach to running, coaching, and life. So in today's episode, I explore with David the philosophy and principles that undergird his coaching, how he arrived at them, how he went from being a 210-pound football and baseball player to a two-time national champion in the 10K, how he has evolved and improved as a running coach, what new training ideas seem most promising to him, whether he would consider coaching non-runners, and more. And so let's go ahead and get to my conversation with David Roche. Well, David, how are you today and where are you today? <laughs> I am doing really well. Um, I just put together a, a table, which I think I'll probably be sore for three or four days from. <laughs> um, so the reason I'm putting, putting together a table is I'm currently in the Bay Area in California, where um, we're going to be spending a little bit of time each year as um, my wife and co-coach and brains of the operation, Megan, um, goes and does PhD and other amazing things, working for a startup, um, still doing everything else. So um, so I'm mainly here assembling tables um, and getting sore for three days. So, okay, I don't think I knew about Megan's, this is, this is a new program. She's just starting a PhD? <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I I thought it was, you know, it's humbling enough that, you know, you're your doctor wife, but now double doctor wife. <laughs> well, she has an insatiable hunger for learning, and I like to think I have a a hunger that can get very satiated for learning, <laughs> um, especially for tests. So, yeah, so she's going back. Um she has this really cool opportunity to do a PhD in epidemiology at Stanford while doing um working for uh, startup company here and coaching. So it's this really cool mix of continuing her former, the research she's done for a while on that focuses primarily on runner health um, and genetics. So she's kind of at the cutting edge of that world. And um, yeah, every time we talk about it at dinner, I'm like, I understood half the words you just said, and I'll <laughs> nod quietly and hope for the best. <laughs> well, I think in life, surrounding ourselves with people who are smarter than us is actually one of the smartest things we can always do. So <laughs> I, I applaud. Uh, yeah, I, hey, I applaud I, this. I put together a table <laughs> with very minimal glances at the instructions. So I am not. I am not putting down my actually. Right. No, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. Um, your name has come up on previous episodes of Off the Couch already, 
and uh, and it was in a conversation actually with with Claire Gallagher just after she won Western States, and she mentioned that you have a saying that races and competitions ought to be viewed as a celebration of your training. And as somebody who came from a very competitive background in football and basketball and, and, and as was a sprinter, I'd never heard anything like that before. And which is kind of embarrassing to admit, cause this was like a couple months ago. <laughs> and I just, that was the thing where I was like, let me find out more about this guy. Awesome. I like to think that, you know, you, you heard that and then Google image searched me, saw like a bunch of dog photos and we're like, man, I'm not sure about this. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it gets back to the idea that not only are races celebrations, like literally everything we do needs to be a celebration if we can. Uh, you know, that it's a reductive way to look at things sometimes, but it, it's really true because, you know, we strive and strive and strive and what we're striving for is often, you know, dust in the wind and we get it and we grab it and it just goes through our fingers. And so, yeah, I mean, the joy is in the striving. There's nothing unique about that statement. And like, it's kind of what I try to try to get athletes to envision that the goal isn't to have good runs and good races. The goal is to have good runs and bad runs and terrible runs and injuries and successes and all that stuff. And um, so, you know, if you can start to view all of that as part of like what your why, why you do things, then it really takes some of the pressure off. And that's kind of my goal as a coach. Before we get into more of the coaching philosophy and all of that, I'm excited to talk to you a bit about your background. And it, it's funny, I sometimes think when we've got a, you know, an accomplished coach like you are, you get ossified into that, right? That's who you are. It's kind of who you've always been and it's who you always will be. And it's like, but there was a time when you were into things like football and baseball, right? Yeah. Um, so initially, I went to college to play football um, and baseball. And so I was like one of those 200 pounds guys with like a fire hydrant for a neck. Like, um, yeah, I made a joke in the book about like a pot roast that dreamed of becoming a real boy. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, it's like super muscular sprinter, jumper, like, um, to give you an idea of like how much the body can change. So when I went to, when I went to college that first, you know, they do it like a strength test and I could bench press 225 pounds, 13 times. And now I could probably bench a hundred pounds, maybe once, maybe. And that's only because I just worked on a table and definitely got my pecs going. <laughs> um, so yeah, like, um, you know, that football experiment didn't last too long in college, but it gave me like a lot of understanding for, you know, that distance running might as much as like a book wants to say we're born to run. Like, I don't think that's probably true, at least in a performance perspective. Maybe we're born to move on our feet for long periods of time, but we're not born to do mile intervals or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, this process really has to come from a place of like, you know, loving the whole, the whole, good, bad, all that stuff, because our bodies are not just naturally going down this path of like, you know, someone like Claire makes it look so effortless and natural when she runs a hundred miles. Um, but even for her, it's not like that, you know, like seeing behind the scenes. So, um, yeah, like the funny, I mean, I know that you have the background similarly, so like you must, you must feel it all the time. 
Well, I, Brendan Leonard was making fun of me recently because I still, even though, you know, this was forever ago that I was, uh, you know, playing football in college, I still like, I'm like, but I'm a fast twitch athlete. And so like, of course I can't do all this long distance running. And it's like, oh no, David just completely, (laughs) you just completely blew up that excuse for me. So I'm not that psyched on this right now. (laughs) Oh my God. Well, you know, the most embarrassing moment connected to all this stuff for me was, I think for like, maybe it was my 21st birthday, maybe it was my 25th. I don't know. But my mom put some of the home videos that she had just lying around on to the cloud or whatever. And so the we were sitting at my childhood home, maybe one of the last times I ever went there, and Megan was there. And Megan, Megan only knew me as a runner. So um, this this was a totally foreign version of me to her. And so we're just going through and we're watching like you know actual home videos, like childhood video type things for a little bit. And um you know, that's kind of my nightmare to begin with because I don't like attention on me like that. And so then she flips to, you know, she's flipping down, like looking at the video options and she sees, she sees when I'm a little older and she clicks on it and it's me in a weight room. And I have no idea why this video was taken in my head. The story has become like to, to look at form or something, but I'm not exactly sure why. And in the video, I'm like bench pressing like ridiculous amounts of weight and right after doing the bench press. So I bench press and like, I'm like doing the whole grunting thing and all that. And then right after I sit up, look at the camera and just flex, um, (laughs) which I'm like, Oh my God, that person deserves to like never see the light of day again. And so of course Megan screenshotted that, that photo and it's made the rounds on, you know, among our friends at different times. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, with, with football, I also had to play a little bit of a character to get my, uh, because it's not maybe the baseline nature for my personality. So give me just, we won't, we won't dwell on this for too long, but talk to me a little bit, like, where did you grow up and when did you start playing football or you played through high school, I presume? And was this, were you into it or was this kind of, you had parents who were pushing you toward that or friends or what, tell me the quick, (laughs) I'm gonna have I'm gonna have people so mad that I'm spending this much time with you talking about like your football past. But anyway, apologies in advance. <laughs> well, no, I mean I think I think it informs the later stuff. You know, when we get to me like waxing poetically about BS, um, I think it'll make more sense with the background, um, especially people that don't know me. Um, so I grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland, which for anyone that's ever driven through there, it's like very farmlandy. Um, so on a farm there and it was 30 miles to my high school. So it was the typical Friday night lights type of area of the country. Um, so I always felt out of place growing up. Um, and I think that that's a very common experience for almost all kids, but I think especially where I was, it just didn't feel right to me. Like I, I was so excited to get out even then. And, um, you know, like Lin-Manuel Miranda had, uh, a quote about like the way to form a writer. And I imagine someone that thinks deeply about any of these issues, the way to form them is to have them feel slightly out of place everywhere they go when they're younger. Um, and so that was me And like onto that, you know, I played football and baseball because that was what people did. Um, and my parents, my parents weren't, weren't for it by any means, but they came around. And so, yeah, you know, I just kind of followed where the inertia took me and, um, ate, drank like, six protein shakes a day. And that was that. Um, 
but yeah, so like I, as soon as I graduated, I went to, went to college to play, but then the coolest thing about that is it got me out of where I was and really exposed me to the total opposite world. So because I went to college at Columbia in like New York, in New York city in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And it was like a full immersion in the exact, um, opposite approach to, to life. And it was so healthy for me, even as I grew to hate the city. Um, I always like love that time because, you know, it taught me like how everyone does have this universal experience, even as we're living totally different lives. And then coaching really doubled down on that. So then talk about this transition from football and baseball to solo endurance sports. Like how did that happen pretty quick? No, not at all. Like, so I think that this is probably the most important element of like what coaching became and what I try to do and hope to do in the community generally, like endurance sports are just sports. Um, so, you know, I quit football. I was that pot roast boy and like slowly, you know, stopped lifting and my body became like, you know, a little bit more normal and started biking and things like that. But then like nine months later, I was like, you know, I'm going to go on a run. My dad had been, had biked when I was growing up. Um, so I was like, I had always like watched the Tour de France and done stuff like that and like admired endurance sports. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to go run. I'm going to be a runner. Maybe one day I can even like run on the track team or something, you know, someone, some ridiculously uh, naive statement like that. And so I remember I just went out for my run and um I was like, I had big dreams. You know, I had read enough about training to understand, you know, you run five miles. That's what people do. Um, and so I started my run and I got 30 seconds out the door, probably like a hundred yards. And I was just unable to go any further. I couldn't run long distance. I just couldn't do it. Endurance running was impossible. Um, a lot of that was because I took all that time off, but then a lot of it was just like endurance running is impossible until you get used to it. Um, (laughs) So the postscript to that is that my calves were sore from that 30-second run for like two or three days. Um, And I always try to remember that because like, you know, it's really easy to be like, okay, a five-mile run is a run. And I'm like, no, no, oh my God. Like getting out the door, moving forward when running is this thing that that feels, you know, that takes constant reinforcement, like any amount is such an accomplishment. And so I try to tell any, all of our athletes, like five or 10 minutes is awesome. Like if that's all you can do, that's great. Like even for, even for pros like Claire. Um, but yeah, so then from there, it was a slow burn until, um, I went to graduate school and met my wife, Megan, or, you know, eventually wife, Megan. And then things kind of took off and we, you know, three or four years later really started to immerse ourselves in it, but it took that much time for it to go to become more natural. So be honest here, where you like, you meet Megan and then you're like, uh oh, if I'm going to impress this woman. (laughs) (laughs) I think I've actually been thinking about that a little bit recently because, like, if you look at the trajectory of my life, I would say like a lot changed after we met. Um, And I'm not exactly sure about the answer, but I, with running at least, I don't think it had anything to do necessarily with keeping up because the, the funny thing about her is she has a very similar background to you and I. She was a field hockey player at Duke um, So when we met. So um, she was extremely strong and fast and like an incredible athlete. And she was also a great runner, but like it was never understood that, oh, to be with her, you needed to be a runner. Um, we just kind of fell in love with each other at the same time as we fell in love with like going to parks and doing runs on the trails and stuff. Though I do remember our first run 
where he bonked at like mile five, which, you know, was probably the last time she was ever the one that struggled on one of our runs. <laughs> After that, it was all downhill for me. So here's one of the other things I was really interested in talking with you about kind of the underlying elements of, I think it's fair to call it your kind of philosophy of coaching. And I wanted to try to get a better handle on how that came to be and maybe some of the books or authors or some of the traditions that perhaps informed some of that, or if this is stuff that you've just kind of come onto on your own through a lot of reflection and, and a lot of working with different people. But so you are through Columbia and I presume you read some books while you were there. I read, I read some cliff notes. I, read, I went to the Wikipedia as a multiple, multiple philosophers. <laughs> I should ask, what, what did you study at Columbia? Environmental science. Okay. Were you doing much on the humanities side? Well, they, so they do like a core curriculum where you spend your first two years doing philosophy classes, essentially, no matter what your background is. But that, I mean, at the time, it didn't actually resonate with me at all. Um, and even now, I don't think that, I mean, I think that that was important because it exposed me to how other people interpreted these ideas, you know, like the other students. I don't necessarily think, like for me, reading, you know, Homer or St. Augustine or whatever really um, pushed me forward very far. Because like I said, you can only get so much from Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> but don't tell any of my professors I said that. Um, but what did, I think, was being in this environment where like there was so much diversity of thought and in my own way, like coming into like being really uncomfortable in a wholly new way than I was when I was younger. And it really just, I think drew home these ideas of like empathy and really trying to see other people's experiences as much as I can and giving like love and support to those experiences because I knew what I was feeling and I knew that no one around me would have any idea I was feeling that, you know? Um, so as a kid, um, like when I, when I was younger, I read a ton of Vonnegut. So I think Kurt Vonnegut is probably the person that influenced like the young brain, my young, my young brain the most. Um, you know, so he's like humanist, but the, you know, he has like a bunch of great little turns of phrase lines that I, that have resonated a lot through my life. Like, um, we're, we're like one of the, one of the ones that even as a little kid, I was like, whoa was we're here to help each other get through this thing, whatever it is. Um, you know, this idea of life is some unknowable, like, uh, impossible, like really impossible to understand thing, but that, you know, you do have this sense of connection and community, even as you don't have the answers. Um, and then, you know, the, the flip side of that is that, um, like a, another line in that same thing is we're here to fart around and don't let anyone tell you different. <laughs> So you combine those two and you basically get what I try to do with coaching nowadays, which is, you know, give as much love as I can while emphasizing that we're all farting around, whether you're trying to win Western states or, you know, raise kids or whatever. Like, it's just our, just, just our farts, our, our life flatulence. And that's, that's good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, basically that, that was it. And then just really trying to, you know, read as much as I can and, um, understand as much as I can, and and with under with the 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 underlying thing that I know my limitations, and um, like there's some things that like I'm never going to have the answers to almost anything, and so 
Um, I think that also helped too, because it's easy as a coach to be like, do what I say and you will succeed. When the reality is like, do what I say and you know, you might succeed or you might fail or whatever, because it's all chaotic and we're never sure what's going to happen. I was listening to this conversation that you did with, uh, Tina Muir, you and Megan had with her. And in this like 15 minute span, you literally, because I started writing this stuff down, you were talking about the conception of the self. You were talking about the human condition. You were talking about finding courageous self-belief. You were talking about ego. You literally were talking about existential crisis. You were talking about death. And I was like, as somebody who has spent a whole lot of time reading Greco-Roman or Hellenistic philosophers and the, 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 the cynics and the Stoics and the Epicureans. By the way, you were also talking about your dog. And in, in the Greco-Roman tradition of cynicism, the word cynic actually comes from the Greek word kunos, which is the word for dog. Wow. So what's the connection there? Well, so they would, the, one of the founders of cynicism, um, Diogenes, they, in a kind of disparaging way, some of his contemporaries would call him Diogenes the dog because he lived like a dog. He didn't care about material possessions or reputation or things like that. And, and so it was Diogenes the kunos or the cynic. And that is how we got the name of cynicism, which this is a very different connotation than when we call somebody a cynic today, right? Which is synonymous with skeptic. So it was, I'm like, as I keep listening to this, and then you guys are talking about how your dog was super fundamental to your philosophy of coaching, I was like, is this guy a closet PhD in Hellenistic uh, philosophy here? Or did he did he have psychedelic mushrooms before <laughs> trying to do this podcast? <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe. Yeah. I, I didn't know what was going on, but um, but that's why I was particularly interested to kind of get a sense of if there were any authors or traditions or, or books that were pretty fundamental in terms of helping you shape how you do coach? You know, all that stuff, all that stuff adds to the pot. Like it's, it's so interesting when, especially when you're not a PhD and you don't analyze your influences too much, you know, it's always hard to know what seasoning is in there. Uh, but you know, I'm very, influenced by like humanism and stoicism in particular. And, you know, Ryan Holiday um, is a runner actually that writes, writes well on stoicism. Um, but I think it makes sense that he's a runner. Um, and yeah. And so there's, there's some of that in there, but I would say the main thing that happened. So like if someone is listening to this for the first time, or if they've listened to me, like talk about this stuff a lot, it's not like this is my baseline nature. And I think I have any authority. I think that the act of coaching, the way that we try to coach, just really opens you up to other people's experiences. And I think the universal thing of anyone that like sees other people's experiences is this feeling of like, you know, universal, like trying to move towards universal love and acceptance and connection. And so um, that's what I'm trying to do for other people is hopefully like I can just give them ever so slight of a tailwind on their journey towards self-acceptance. Um, because all of these questions, all these big philosophical questions are just trying to anchor ourselves in the universe as a whole. Um, and we can all come up with different answers to that. But 
pretty much all of these traditions falls on that same, like the same answer that you have, even if you've never read philosophy in your life. It's like, what the heck am I doing here? What does this mean? And the answer often comes up crickets and, you know, the process of getting okay with that cricket sound and then starting to love that cricket sound and then love your place in the way that it put, like, it's almost like a music to your ears. Like that's what all of the philosophers really are trying to do. Um, and so, or at least in, in my like super optimistic reading of things. Um, and so coaching was where that really happened. So the way we coach is um, we try to check in with every single athlete every single day, all year round. Like, um, and so, you know, if you think about people like Claire that have been on the team for four years or others that are on like day 2,200 of their training logs, and we've talked every single time and every single day in that time, like in a, you know, in writing, it's like after a certain point, you start to see their lives unfold and understand how, how their brains work and what they're feeling and things like that, especially if you create, try to create this environment where like nothing's off limits. And gosh, when you do that, like, I imagine that it's not unique to coaches. It's also like teachers or like professors like you or, or therapists or, or other things. It's like, wow. I mean, you just, you just get compassion because everyone is dealing with stuff. Like it doesn't have to be obvious stuff that, you know, makes it into like WebMD searches for what's plaguing you. It can be like really weird stuff. It can be existential. It can be as simple as like hating your job, like hating your marriage, you know, hating your body, all this other stuff. And so, yeah, seeing that unfold little by little over time, it's like, yeah, you just kind of get a sense of perspective, um, on, on what things are. So yeah, I have no wisdom, but I, I do, I am lucky that the people that we coach have, um, you know, <laughs> given me some of theirs. It sure seems like there's a pretty important coaching element for you that goes beyond just some narrow focus on how fast you are as a runner or getting better, you know, race results. It sure sounds like what you're saying is, listen, if you line up your life in the proper way, this is probably going to be a very important foundation for us to then start worrying and working on your running. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think the fundamental point there is that often how fast someone is able to go is a mistake of genetics. Um, it's based on two people that had sex decades ago. And I don't necessarily think we should reward someone for you know, two people that had sex decades ago. I just don't think it's that relevant. Um, and so, yes, you know, we coach pros, speed matters for our marketing, and there's an inherent contradiction in a lot of the stuff I say. But the, the main principle there is that if someone is willing to give themselves to something and go for it and not fear failure and try to find courageous self-belief, then in that process they can help develop the tools to be okay with death, to be okay with failure and other things. Like running is awesome because it's a metaphor for the, for life. It's a metaphor for life that nece doesn't necessarily have the, the big implications, but it really is like, if you're a runner, um, you know, and I think the reason death comes up so much aside from me being a lonely kid um, <laughs> is because, you know, if you're a runner 
every single time your body fails, which could just be in a workout, it could be in a race, it could be injury, it could be all these things. If you're introspective and you think about your body failing, you know where that regression line ends. You know, that's going one place. That's going to a slow decline to death if you're lucky. And that thought, even if it's not explicit, is in the mind of every athlete. Like, I mean, I was watching ESPN earlier today and here all the time. It's like, oh, this athlete, you know, they're 28 years old. You know, the age curve really starts to starts to get them then. Like, you know, athletes in, in those sports peak much younger than than people used to think, right? Like it's like 25 is generally where they, and it's like, well, what is that athlete going through that's thinking about that? You know, when they're told that they can't get a, that running back can't get a contract at age 27, you know, maybe they're not thinking explicitly about their death, but they're definitely contemplating, you know, something approaching mortality. Um, and so I think athletics is awesome because it makes us so aware of our physical nature. Um, and once, once you do become aware of your physical nature and become aware of decay and all those things, like you need to start to have a perspective that is resilient against, um, you know, against those realities and like that those realities are an essential part of. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of where it comes at. Like, I don't necessarily, I don't care if someone's fast. I care that they, they go for it as much as they're able to in the context of their lives. And so we have a line that, um, you know, to us, you're an elite athlete if you go for it in a way that is meaningful in the context of your life. That's, that's it. Like, I don't care where it leads. Like, um, I don't care if it is a win in Western States or you're maybe able to run a half mile one day. Um, it's more just about like embracing that process of self-betterment in the face of decline. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, that's way, you know, we're like three beers deep in the <laughs> philosophy conversation right now. But, but yeah, like, you know, I've coaching the, I would say the coolest thing about it is getting to see people go through the ultimate highs and ultimate lows and often the same person over the course of years, you know? And once you start to see that, it gives you a perspective that's kind of impossible to have in your own life. Um, and you know, my goal was to then try to help athletes a little bit on their own journey, not by telling them what to do. Like I never really provide advice. It's more just being there and hopefully giving a little bit of that puppy like, um, love. I'm not sure I believe you that you never provide advice. <laughs> well, I, how about probably the better way to say it is I try not to mansplain, uh, their life <laughs> okay. lives to them. That's um, probably good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, so I mean, I would say my advice is almost always about like taking a step back, you know, since in our own lives, it's always so easy to get focused on the granular details and running again, and a good example of this, like being so focused on the details of like a workout or a pace or something that you lose sight that really all that matters is developing consistency developing top end speed and then letting the chips fall where they may. And then all those little details that are easy to get focused on aren't necessarily that important. You know, there's probably 75 different training methods that could work for a single athlete as long as those two boxes are checked. Um, and so life is like that too, that, you know, it's so easy to, to get so caught up in our own stuff that we lose sight of like the things that make us so awesome. And that, that's the idea is like, we're all awesome. Like, everyone listening to this is freaking awesome. Um, and you just need to, need to help people embrace that. Um, so yeah, how, how that works in practice varies a lot. 
ends up being a lot of cuss words and exclamation points. <laughs> Speaking of, I think I, uh, after Claire won Western States, you know, she's, we, we've gone back and forth every day for like, I think 12 or 1300 days and I control F. So I searched her training log, uh, and the F word I think appeared like 300 times. Uh, <laughs> So we try to we try to bring in a lot of enthusiasm. <laughs> That's good. Actually, I, I do remember there were eleven hundred forty-two exclamation points. Um, so it's about one per day, which I I would say is probably the most important uh, statistic on me. The exclamation point. Yeah, which is it's forced. You know, like I mean, I, I wasn't. I'm not naturally like. I mean, if we, as insofar as we have a natural setting, like I'm not set to exclamation point, but I really, I want to be that person and I've, I hopefully can help others move in that direction. When would you say you started coaching or your coaching career? 2013. 2013. So since 2013, what do you think is maybe the most significant way in which you've become a better coach? Um, that's a great question. I would say, I mean, I, the, the funny thing there is that the honest answer is everything hopefully is constantly improving. But in, if I had to name one, I would say an ability to take criticism um, is, is where I'm improving and always need to improve every day. Um, I'm not amazing at, um, navigating like negativity directed at me. Um, and I never have been ever since I was a little kid. And so, um, you know, I, I turtle up. I'm one of those people that like, you know, the best way to edit me is to tell me good job and then just change it <laughs> rather than like telling me what I did wrong. Um, so yeah, like that's, that's kind of, and, and as a coach, it's super important because, you know, even if you have an amazing relationship, people aren't always going to be happy with you and you need to be okay with that space and give people like the, the flip side of unconditional love and support is that you need to give people the space to be like unhappy with you and, and express those feelings. Like, even if that's not my style, like I'm the one that is probably, um, in the wrong if I'm, if I'm not, you know what I mean? Because like, I don't feel like the need to express those feelings. So that's an amazing question and one I hadn't thought of. I think that's probably the right answer. I hope for any of us doing anything where you're like, well, I hope I'm improving along every single aspect. Yeah. I guess I was specifically just wondering if you're like, yeah, man, when I finally figured this element out, it really seemed to make a palpable difference either in the dynamics with the athletes I work with and the people I work with, or with their specific results and performance? I, I wish. I wish I had I had a good answer to that. You know, I, I think that, and I don't even, you know, I haven't done enough navel-gazing of coaching to, like, understand when things kind of took off and why they took off. Um, I think, essentially, like, we all have so much inside of us in everything we do. You know, running is obvious because of of, like, there's results and times and stuff, but that applies to literally everything. And like giving people like a little push on that path 
is all that it's about. Like all I think teaching is about, coaching is about, therapy is about, all these different things. It's not about like telling anyone anything. Like no one learns from that really. Like no one changes behavior from that. It's about giving people like the, the, like a little bit of courage to believe in themselves. And I think, you know, getting back to like why after I met Megan, did my running take off? Like nothing really changed. I think it was just, I was willing to make that next step of like going for it and not caring as much about things and, and giving myself the grace to fail. Um, so yeah, I wish there was something fundamental that changed, but I think like any craft or whatever, you're constantly changing little things at the margin. Like we're not getting into methodology, but all that has constantly evolved slightly. Um, but I don't think that it's that important. I mean, the more, the more I do this, the more I, more I start to think like, oh, I'm not exactly sure what leads to what. Um, so I don't know. As I've heard you talk in the past, as you do in your book, um, and as you're doing here, you are talking about the importance of self-acceptance. And you have talked about this, you know, that all of us feel this insecurity. And I guess on those, if we just stay on those two things, self-acceptance, the importance of self-acceptance and um, the importance of overcoming insecurities or not being paralyzed by them or things like that. But just among the sample set of, of specific people that you've worked with over the years, I do think it would be interesting to hear from you. Yeah, of these particular folks, these are some of the things that I've seen most as some of the most fundamental recurring issues. Or if it's like, man, I don't know, every person, it's been all over the place. Yeah, that's an amazing question. I would... Again, not a psychologist, don't know any details about what I'm talking about. But I would say just based on getting to know people very closely behind the scenes, um, everyone that isn't a clinically diagnosed narcissist is dealing with insecurity in their own ways. Um, and so insecurity doesn't necessarily mean, oh, am I good enough? Am I, am I going to be a good runner? Or like, am I a good parent? It can be like much, much less like much less emotional about it. Like it can be, oh, you know, how's this race going to go for me? I'm not exactly sure based on my training. Um, and then that insecurity also manifests itself in similar ways in other parts of life where they're constantly asking questions of themselves. Um, and, or insecurity can be like on these big picture issues of like, you know, my father had a heart attack when I was 50. I don't really feel secure with like myself and my existence and who I am. Um, and so, yeah, I would say pretty much everyone, but Trump probably has insecurity. Um, and you know, in the in the in the face of that, like it it can be totally different for some people. Like you know, mental health, like depression and anxiety are almost ubiquitous, but not quite. You know, like a lot of people don't have that. Um, and I would say that that was probably one of the more interesting findings in my coaching. So I'm fortunate that I've avoided depression. But my mom had it when I was a kid. And then I think that made me very like open to seeing it in athletes. And I mean, it's, it's gotten to the point that it's like, you start to realize how often that that depression and anxiety aren't conditions or anything. It's just probably a side effect of existence, (laughs) you know, that we, that is, is waiting there for all of us and brain chemistry plays a big role, but so does existence itself. Um, and so, yeah, with with that in mind, like 
you know, I don't think it's necessarily a subsection of people that I happen to come into contact with. I think it's just that, you know, I've come into contact with enough people that I see what pretty much everyone starts to see after a while. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the, probably the most interesting element of that for, for people listening is that these things that like I get to know sometimes, like they don't manifest themselves on Instagram, right? Like you don't see them often in others. So whatever you're dealing with listening to this, just know it's shared and like, you know, it might not be possible to laugh through right now, but like later on, you can probably move towards this space where it like doesn't envelop your being. And it's something that you find a little bit of humor in, but I mean, that's obviously like, you know, something for you to talk to with a therapist or a medical professional. But yeah, so like, I think the, the big thing there is just trying as hard as we possibly can to give ourselves grace, to feel how we feel and to accept it and to like who we are, even the really crazy, annoying parts of ourselves, um, that those are parts of yourself that you can love too. And then try to do that for others after you do it for yourself, because that's when like, you know, the dark and coldness, darkness and coldness of like existence itself become a little bit more light and fuzzy and funny. By the way, I'm not a psychologist either, but the one thing I think I would um, disagree with you on that you just said is, uh, and, I, and I don't actually say this flippantly at all, I actually think Donald Trump is wildly insecure. <laughs> Me? Interesting. I, I do. Like, I mean, like so? 100%. I think that, again, I'm not a trained psychologist and I'm not trying to just take some shot, but as we're having these conversations, I think the most insecure people I think I've ever met in my life are the ones that doth protest too much. Yeah. And, I can, um, I can yeah. see that. Yeah. So for that reason, honestly, for all the times when I find our president absolutely infuriating and worse than that, that actually is the part where the compassion comes in for me. Cause I do actually think that guy is wildly insecure and that points to an open wound and that as opposed to just saying this guy is pure evil or something like that that you know at at moments some of us might be tempted to say yeah i mean i agree i don't think i think pure evil is probably almost no one i mean i, I think like i my my assumption just based on what little i know is that narcissism can take over that side of the brain a little bit so that the narrative becomes something different than you or I might experience. Um, I don't know though. And yeah, either way, I feel like people should be given grace and compassion until they have the nuclear codes. Yeah. And then, then, <laughs> then these we things can, really we can matter. Yeah. Talk about compassion. Yeah. So you're saying all this stuff. There's a lot of kind of philosophical sounding talk in all of this. When you're working let's say specifically talking about some of the pros you work with when, when, when you are talking on a day-to-day -day basis, how much does this kind of talk that we've got going in this particular conversation come into the day-to-day -day with them? Oh yeah. Almost never. I mean, I hope, um, I mean, in this, in this would never come up outside of like hopefully a podcast or a late night conversation or something in like normal life. And um, what, what is more is that, you know, 
life comes in seasons and waves, right? And so when it's a sunny day or, or when it's things are normal, like most of the most of the talk is like, you're freaking awesome. Like be proud of you, like, things like that, like that type of you know, positive reinforcement element. Um, and then when the thunderstorms come, you know, when the, those things happen, then we'll take steps back and talk about like, you know, heavy subjects and things and just hopefully have a place where it's open. You know, if an athlete, an athlete can talk about that stuff, like, you know, I, I mean, honestly, probably the, the coaching moment that was most like the, the time that I cried the hardest, like tears of joy was, an athlete on the team um, decided to officially transition genders. And, and I had no idea, you know, I was coaching this athlete, this athlete I thought was a man. And the first person outside of um, her partner she called was me. Um, and, you know, that's what I hope to do is just, give people a place where they know that they can say or do no wrong in my eyes, like in, in any circumstance about anything, which is really hard um, in, in your real life. But I would ask like everyone listening, like if you're able to do that just a little bit, as much as you possibly can do it, like it lifts so many up and it just doesn't go for like your wife or your partner, which is just honestly, it's just easier to become like complacent in those situations. It also goes for like, people that you might just have a passing interaction with or, or anything else, like give them that space that they know they're not walking on eggshells or getting judged. Um, and this is where actually your question about how much does my personal experience come into this, you know, because I think I was, and I am pretty self-conscious. And so a fear of being judged is always there. And so, you know, I'm probably mapping and projecting a little bit of my own insecurity in this situation, but Gosh, it can just make all the difference. And I think what is coolest about SWAP, the team summer call play that we have, is that, you know, by lifting that, like, it seems that athletes have have broken down barriers for themselves that they might not have even known they were the ones erecting in the first place, rather than, like, their, their genetics or whatever or their situation. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that's to me the... the that's why every weekend when athletes race, I'm so excited. It's not about the race so much. Um, it's more about everything that that means for their journey. And like when Claire won Western States, I was there at the finish line crying like a baby. And I am not a crier as much as I've talked about it two times in this answer. Like I am a, um, I'm a pretty, pretty stoic, like pretty emotionally even keeled person in general, almost to a fault. Um, and just not about the race, though that was very cool to see. More about like knowing everything that went into that over the years and the type of person she's become in the process and uh, all that stuff. Like I'm getting chills thinking about it. And that that journey is in all of us, right? Like sometimes for Claire, it leads to winning Western States because Claire is a freaking life boss. But for a lot of us, that might lead to you finish your first 50K or you do your first five mile or, or whatever. And that that can be celebrated so freaking much. It's like this time you can reflect on how amazing you are and how much you were able to give and give of yourself, give of your body. And I mean, to me, that's the coolest thing. I wanted to ask you, I asked you a question about, you know, since 2013, um, I asked you how you, like what the most significant thing is that you have learned or discovered um, and 
you know, that has improved your own coaching. I'm curious whether there's anything currently that you are sort of turning over in your mind or just starting to learn about where you're not yet sure that this is like gonna be a new thing you do or a new way that you are um, coaching your clients, but is anything kind of currently on the radar for you where you're like, huh, I haven't really thought about this or I've never thought to implement this. And this could be a deep philosophical thing or this might be a very specific tactic. Yeah. So I've been so far, so high up in the clouds on this interview, I'll, I'll dig down into the weeds very deeply. Um, there, in running, athletes can be separated. And this gets back to what you were saying earlier. Athletes can be separated in general based on their muscle fiber composition. So, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you have pure slow twitch athletes. This will be most of your Olympic endurance runners, that sort of thing. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you might have more fast twitch athletes, like, um, you know, type, type two, like fast twitch fibers. And then in the middle, there's people that have a mix of both, have intermediate fibers, which can kind of play, play both sides. I probably, for example, without doing a muscle biopsy, probably have a substantial number of intermediate fibers because I was able to do both at a semi, not, not super high, but semi high level to a point that it wouldn't make sense physiological, physiologically for me to be pure fast twitch. Um, and that kind of makes sense based on what I saw. Like I got my 40 time really good, but my 100 and 200 meter times weren't as good likely because I was able to train my neuromuscular system to be really good at that. But the pure explosion, what like, you know, long distance explosion is a fast twitch activity that has to be developed. Um, and so the big question I have is how training should vary between the, you know, where people fall on that spectrum. Um, and the reason I ask it is because I, I have, I think I have ways now that I've cross-referenced with like the biopsies I have seen to know generally where people are based on that. Um, and people respond to training stimuli totally differently, not just based on that, but based on other factors like if someone did Claire's training exactly word for letter or pace for pace, distance for distance, the chances that they won Western States would be very slim. Um, it worked a ton for Claire. And if Claire did someone else's, if Claire did Casey's training, the woman that finished third, most likely Claire would, would not have won Western States, even though, you know what I mean? So like there's, those athletes are responding totally differently. So my question is how should we vary um, some of the intensity stimuli, especially their, the high intensity speed stimuli for those different types of athletes. Um, so I've been playing a little bit over time and collecting data with Megan on, you know, what we're really known for, I would say in training is, is a heavy emphasis on top end speed and strides and hill strides, essentially things that are 30 seconds or less. Um, and how fast athletes should do those relative to their capabilities, how much recovery they should have in between them, whether full recovery or very short recovery, things like that. So yeah, it's just been playing around with that over time and seeing some really interesting outcomes so far that I think are playing into, into the team's, um, you know, how this year has gone, but maybe not at the same time, which I think gets to one of the really interesting parts of coaching is it's really easy to be like, okay, I started a day. I did B and I got to C. Clearly B cause C. And it's like, probably not. Um, and by thinking that you're, you know, you're messing up the next person. And so I try to resist that thought, but I get excited. <laughs> 
So fulfillment wise, how does coaching and working with all of these folks compare to your own athletic achievements and what you're doing as a runner yourself? For me, my own running is just an excuse for the process. I, I don't identify whatsoever anymore with, with that stuff. Um, and I think that that was always my destiny. It's probably why coaching is like almost like a selfish pursuit in a good way. And that we all need to find our pursuits that are selfish for us. You know, like that person that works at the nonprofit probably gets great joy from their work at the nonprofit or, you know, they should do something else. Um, so like for me, I think I never got tons of joy from my own success in anything. Um, but like when other people did, like it would be so cool. Um, and so I think that that's kind of like a prerequisite to be a, be a coach that like lifts athletes up over time, because if there's any hint of like ego or jealousy in that process, athletes can sniff it out. And if they, even if they can't, um, it just tears athletes down to think that at some level they're being like, like there's examples I'm thinking of one in particular in, in a in triathlon. There's examples of, of coaches that get great results from the athletes, but then their athletes are like husks of human be, human beings by the end. Um, and I'm like, yeah, it's not cool. Um, and it, there's analogs in football too, obviously, and things like that. So, so yeah, I don't identify. I mean, I identify as someone that uses my body to do athletic things and, and do do runs, and I train hard, and I'm training for races always because I love it. But I don't. Like if I could never race again, like if someone told me that, I'd be like, fine, that's totally great. I'll still train the same way. I'll still train like I'm racing, but um, I'd be I'd be fine just going to other people's races. The Happy Runner, give me your synopsis of how you talk about that book. A dog reads a Snapple cap about Buddhism and writes a running book. Um, oh, man. But... It, that that was made up on the fly, so it's didn't, pretty didn't good. Enough that it wasn't rehearsed. Um, an honest answer, I think it's about you know what it means to have a journey towards self acceptance in a running life, um, and tried to dig into that a little bit more. And it doesn't have answers like it's not like do this and then you reach this point. Um, it's much more like hey, let's talk about some of these things that we see all the time, and. Um, you know, we were very fortunate that a publisher came to us and asked us to write a book without caring about the subject. And so we were like, well, we'll probably never have this opportunity again. So <laughs> let's, let's go for it. That's pretty great. And I mean, the, the book is roughly divided up into two parts, right? Yeah, yeah. So the first part's all about, you know, maybe I would guess the psychological approach would probably be one way to call it. Um, and then the second part is more about how training fits into that because like as much as we like, it's fun to talk about the, the big philosophical stuff, like day to day of a runner is like what you're doing, you know, like the actual thing you're doing and how that then fits in. So, um, yeah, so it's divided into those two parts. Megan has a, like a turn of phrase she used when we did like a little book tour about, you know, the second part was essential so that the first part would get published. Um, so we really only feel connected to the first part when it comes to that stuff. But, um, the second part's help people, I think. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was really interesting because, you know, we're not like, we don't co-write very often and, you know, in writing a book, you're putting it out there to a lot of people, especially like, you know, this book sold way more copies than we were expecting. And so it ended up being like 
oh God, you know, that insecurity monster really started welling to the surface. But fortunately, I think that um, it's kind of a mirror, like, like, honestly, all things we consume, it's a mirror into ourselves, you know, like the, the people that like it are seeing what they need to see. And the people that don't, you know, it was never for them in the first place type thing. So that was kind of our goal. Pretty good. And by the way, when I say that the book is roughly divided into two sections, it's like, well, it is divided into two. But it's literally the, divided into two sections. But the roughly yeah. part was in that let's not make too strict of a divide on this or we'd be undermining the entire kind of purpose, I think, of this conversation is that <laughs> these sections tend to combine well together. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is that that book, I guess, was largely written in 2017, um, you know, because the, the book publishing process takes way longer than you would think in terms of like them, you know, the publisher getting it into bookstores everywhere. Um, but, you know, the, the funny thing is now looking back, I'd be like, uh, yeah, I think a little bit differently about a lot of these things. But that's that's the fun part of all this stuff is, you know, views change. We evolve. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, I think that that's, that's a big one of those big elements of that's so cool about coaching is seeing that evolution in people. And, you know, we're talking a lot about Claire because she's been on the podcast before, but Claire was a totally different person in 2016. She's always been an amazing athlete, but where she's at now, I mean, you know, it's the same human, but it's a totally different interpretation of the same set of facts. And I am so freaking proud of her for the courage that that's taken because, um, you know, what, like, what you see is what you get with Claire. She is that person she seems to be. And it makes me like so, so happy. Talk to me a little bit about swap running and what this is going to look like now that you and Megan are in the Bay area. And, uh, how does, what is this, what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. So for those that don't know, swap running is just the name for the team. Some work I'll play. Um, Nothing changes because we're, it's all done remotely. You know, we, we hang out with our athletes a lot, um, but all of that stuff, like all the magic is essentially in writing and behind the scenes and stuff. Um, so yeah, nothing changes. You know, Megan is more of the brains behind the operation rather than like the logistics person anyway, in terms of the daily work. So, you know, she has athletes that she's going to keep checking in with every day, but um, she's more going out and collecting information that we can hopefully use to become better coaches in the future. Um, but otherwise, I'm just here assembling tables and sitting in training logs. <laughs> so last question for you. You are known as a running coach. Mm-hmm. And your coaching business is called Swap Running. What's to say that you couldn't become a coach or a consultant for people who aren't runners? Because so much of what we've been talking about is talking about how to be oriented better or worse to your own existence. Well, I think it draws the line of like being so aware of my own ignorance on so many different topics that, uh, yeah, telling, talking to people without that anchoring system would be really, uh, I think really hard for me. Um, actually an athlete on the team, um, is a, you know, 
amazing human here in Silicon Valley who she just started her own angel investment firm. And she's always like, well, have you thought about executive coaching uh, and stuff like that? And we, we had a funny back and forth where essentially the conclusion was, I would be so bad for someone whose performance goals lie or laid in um, things that required a ton of ambition. Um, so, you know, a lot of the endpoints of this, these discussions we're having are you kind of become a little bit like, I mean, the, the dream is to become a little bit like a dog or like Matthew McConaughey in one of his movies, like, all right, all right, all right. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where you are. And in running, that's awesome because running responds to a sense of ease and smoothness. Like really you don't, it's not about, it seems like it's about pushing hard, but it's not. It's about changing what it, what your easy is. Um, it's about making running the same effort or the same pace or same output take less energy. So, you know, the idea is that, yeah, you really do want to like, and you're in the moment, you really do want to be that Matthew McConaughey runner. Um, but when ambition becomes an essential element in that journey, like an executive, let's say, um, my guess is that it would all fall apart. <laughs> um, that the, the philosophy would create a lot of bankrupt businesses, um, <laughs> So that that's I, I'm not sure if that's true, but I'm going to go with that. For that's now. that's actually a really interesting theory that you can be a top achiever in running by learning to relax and sort of be at ease, but that that is not the model for how that works in a competitive business landscape. I'm not sure if you're right about that, but I'm not sure that you're wrong either. But that's <laughs> I think a, it would require it would definitely require a uh, a little bit more of a dissertation, I think, from you to to fully dig down into whether that's true. I would just say that, like, you know, um, at least world historically, you know, like if you read Einstein or Jobs or any of those biographies or whatever, it's like, oh yeah, that that person like self-acceptance was not the motivating factor there, was it? Uh, or any artist, really. And so I think it's possible to do, do a lot of this stuff with self-acceptance being the goal. And I think the, the problem is that if you truly buy into that stuff over time, it kind of dulls a little bit of that ambition moment. So for me, for example, like, you know, when I was young, you know, I had visions that, oh, well, maybe one day I'll do like, I don't know. I, so I went to, I, I was a lawyer. I went to law school. Um, and, you know, I was on a path, I was on that type of path. It's like, oh, well, this probably goes to like senator or something one day. And as I started thinking about this stuff more, I'm like, no way. <laughs> like, that is not me. Um, and, you know, I think that there's a little bit of, there is, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So, a lot of the stuff we're talking about is like has to be delved into a little bit deeper if the goals go beyond like being happy and performing and running, which, you know, I think there's a strong argument that life isn't just about being happy or whatever, depending on the person, you know? So yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, I've never been asked that. And um, for those that are, are looking for coaching, I recommend that you get a golden retriever and Ask, ask it instead because it'll probably do a better job than I will. <laughs> what should I do? And it just smiles at you and wags its tail? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, honestly, that that could be – you could just 
dub out all of my my jabbering today and just have like a golden retriever breathing like very heavily in your ear just <sighs> and people will get the point well david this has been really fun and uh good luck to you and megan uh in your uh, new locale and uh yeah, look forward to connecting again down the line. And uh, it seems like you both have a very interesting and extraordinary thing going right now. So, yeah, congratulations on all of the successes on a lot of different fronts. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I'm really excited to be a small part of your day. All right. You take care. All right. Have a great one. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to David for the conversation. And you can go to swaprunning.com to learn more about the Some Work, All Play training program. And you should also check out David and Megan's book, The Happy Runner. I also want to say thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you are enjoying these off-the-couch episodes, we would very much appreciate it if you would tell your running-loving or running-hating friends about it. Leave us a nice rating or review in iTunes, or leave us a comment in the show notes to this episode on Blister to let us know what you think. Until next time, keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.